movies were made. Adventure, to make you wonder if it's true, while your eyes convince you that it is. Truly, the thrill of thrills. Don't miss it this time. Nicholas, welcome to the Film and Water podcast. Uh, we're here to talk about King Kong. We sure are. Thanks for having me, Rob. It's great to have you here. Uh, this is, you know, look, everybody, uh, anybody listening to this, you don't need to go into the whole review portion of this show because it's King Kong. There's nothing to review. <laughs> it's one of the great cinematic achievements of all time. It's on AFI's list of the top 100 films of all time. It's it's just a, an instant classic. It was one of the biggest hits of all time. It's King Kong. It's been remade several times. And, of course, there's another King Kong movie coming in just a couple of weeks, Kong Skull Island, which I'm very, very excited about. But uh, so we're just going to get into a little bit of the why we both love this movie so much. So, Nichols, what's your history with this movie? Like, when did you first see it? What's your whole deal with, with the original King Kong? Gosh, you know, I, uh, I'm i a few years younger than you, Rob. I'm only 34, but... Uh, our, uh, it's more than a few. <laughs> well, I'm trying to be generous. Uh, um, but, uh, you know, I, I think I came out of the womb loving science fiction and monster movies. But when I was a kid... We, our local affiliate would show a lot of old movies, including a lot of um, like old science fiction uh, shows and, and things. And, and King Kong and Son of Kong got played uh, one Sunday or Saturday afternoon, and, and it was magic, baby. It's a total classic, as you have... Uh, <laughs> uh, I mean, you're uh, taking shots at me left and right here. <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm not trying to, Rob. I'm sorry. <laughs> Enjoy your one and only appearance here on the Silver and Water Podcast. Dang it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, but I, I've loved it ever since. And and uh, when I was 10 years old, I broke my leg skiing for the first and only time that I did that. Okay. <laughs> While I was laid up at home for two weeks, you know, uh, my aunt who had taken me skiing uh, felt bad and got me a gift certificate for a video store. Remember video stores? <laughs> I do, yes. Yeah, you worked in in one. I loved your episode on Tales from the Video Store. That was Thank terrific. You. Thank you. And anyway, so I, you know, I loved monster movies, and so I rented King Kong, the original Fly, and the Bela Lugosi Dracula, and Ooh, I watched. That's the a th- hell of a combo. Yeah, and I watched them over and over and over again, and so those movies are all just like, uh, you know, uh, imprinted on my frontal lobe. That's the kind of the history, my history with the movie, and I and I and I I, uh, I watched it a couple times this week just to, to refamiliarize myself because it's been a few years since I've watched it. But uh, yep, still still uh, one of my all time favorites, 
It's wonderful. <laughs> yeah. It's hard to do anything but just gush about this movie. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a movie that's, I mean, it's, you know, 1933, so the movie is over 80 years old at this point. And, you know, you think about how there were some movies made in the 90s that have special effects that just look horrible, you know, that you really take you out of the movie. The 90s have bad special effects. <laughs> you know, and, and here you've yeah. got a movie that's over 80 years old. And yeah. it still really works, uh, which is pretty remarkable. It's funny. I have a similar history. I mean, I saw the movie for the first time on my local, like, UHF station. I, I used to watch movies on Sunday afternoons where they would run Abin Costello movies and old monster movies and just basically all kinds of different fun stuff. And that's when they ran King Kong. And the, the, the film has a just bizarrely hypnotic power to it and it really hasn't lost any of that even over the years and it's funny um just a couple of days ago you talked about rewatching it i rewatched it and then i also listened to it just as an audio track and so i was listening to just the audio and for a movie that is so rich in its visuals it works really well just as an audio i mean there's long stretches of this movie where there's no dialogue and it yeah. is just the sounds of kong and the the special effect sounds and max steiner's amazing score and it's hypnotic, you know, yeah. it's really hypnotic. And that, again, that's remarkable. It's, you know, and, and it's funny too. Another thing about uh, that, um, you know, current movies nowadays that, that are filled with CGI kind of get knocked because they say, oh, everybody, nothing's made practical every more, anymore. It's all just CGI and you need stuff for the actors to respond to. Well, most of the stuff in this movie, the actors are not responding to. Uh, I mean, King Kong was a King Kong was a puppet made yeah. in a completely different part of the movie process. So when you've got Robert Armstrong or Bruce Cabot or Faye Ray looking at something and screaming, they're not seeing anything. They're they're just looking at an empty studio set. But yet uh, they're able to, you know, the the way this film was sort of composited together, the directors Marion C. Cooper and Ernest B. Shodzak, which those guys deserve a whole other movie just about them. Like yeah, their life story. We can get into that later on. But the amazing life those two guys led. But I mean, they were able to to piece this movie together through you know bits and pieces here and there, and yet it all fits together really well. And one of the things I, I was remark upon remarking upon as I was listening to it was the sound of Kong. That amazing oh, yeah. sound they put together, and apparently it's a lion's roar and a tiger's roar combined, and then run backwards but more slowly. And yeah, it doesn't okay. sound like anything else. It's so distinctive. It's like it just—it sounds otherworldly. I mean, uh, it... uh, I was gonna say in in the same way, like the uh, the Godzilla roar is like an oboe squeaking or something, mm. it, or it's or it's like a it's like a busted clarinet that they they tweak the sound for. It's like and it, that is also another like oh, there's you know that sound and nothing yep. else sounds like it. Yep. Um, but uh, this movie is just. The epitome of lightning in a bottle. It's something, the 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 effects are so state of the art at the time, and everything is so new. But the direction is so solid. The principal cast is wonderful. Even the even the uh, just minor uh, roles, extras. There's plenty of memorable characters who are just have like one or two lines of dialogue. They're like, oh man. Every bit of this movie is just fantastic. It's wonderful. The setup to this movie very contemporary in terms of like the reason that Ann Darrow goes along uh, on this mission is because she's out of work. She's you know quite literally starving to death because it's the depression. Yeah, you know it's, it's that's how Carl uh, Denham finds her 
is because she's she I think he catches her uh, stealing an apple from like an apple vendor and she's about yeah. to get bested she's going to get busted and Carl Denham gets a uh, you know rescues her and offers the guy a dollar he says I'll give you a dollar for the apple or whatever but I mean I right. it's a, it's a it's an interesting reminder of what America was going through at that time you know I mean how rough things were for people just in the couple of years right after the depression yeah and I think it's what a wonderful snapshot of the time and then here's this wonderful escapist adventure to kind of get away from it all for, you know, two hours. Yes. I mean, obviously it worked because this thing was a massive hit. It was one of the big, it's one of the first big Hollywood sort of blockbusters. Yeah. I mean, these guys, I mean, the, the two guys that we were talking about that, that made this movie, uh, Cooper and Chodesack, these guys were basically Carl Denham. Uh, they were adventurers. They just they loved traveling the world and seeing all kinds of crazy stuff. They shot all those nature documentaries uh, where they would like plant plant the. I think there's a footage of uh, of uh, like a of a oh shoot like bulls running or something where they literally planted the camera or horses and they planted wow. the camera on the ground as the horses are running over them. And these guys absolutely had no fear. They, they apparently yeah. didn't occur to them that they could die. And uh, Marion Cooper, during his life, was pronounced dead twice. Jeez. And I'm like, how has there never been a movie about Marion C. Cooper at this point? I mean, that's, that's a remarkable thing to have been declared dead twice. And then you're like, no, 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 I'm still around. I'm still here. It's, and, then, and then after all that, it's to go on to make one of the most popular movies of all time. Like, what a life. Yeah. Um, now, so in terms of uh, the, the puppet, we do need to talk about the puppet, of course, was created by Willis O'Brien, the genius yeah. puppet maker. Now, of course, if anybody, you know, over time, people have noticed that there are a couple different King Kong puppets. Uh, well, yeah, there's, the, there's the giant head one. Right. Which is, it's kind of silly looking, but, I mean, for the time, it's, there was nothing like it. Right. Yeah, I mean, it's the, one of the things that's interesting, I think, about the way King Kong looks is that he doesn't exactly look like a gorilla. He looks like a monster, kind of. He doesn't exactly, yeah. I mean, he's not, uh, he's not a, just a giant gorilla. He looks monsterish. We have kind of a weird face. Uh, I mean, you know, I think that gives him that kind of otherworldly. I mean, when they get to the island, obviously this island, Skull Island, is completely unlike anything we've ever visited because it's got all these cra- I mean not only is there's a giant ape on it there's giant spiders and it, there's there's a brontosauruses and triceratopses and all sorts of you know dinosaurs that still live there but I that's yeah. one of the things I love about King Kong is that he doesn't really look like a gorilla exactly yeah yeah um and I think if he if it looked you know, in, in the more recent remake, it, it totally looks like a gorilla, and I right. think it kind of takes away a lot of the charm. Right. It's just a giant gorilla. I mean, I don't want to. I don't want to bash too hard on the Peter Jackson one because I actually think it's a fairly decent movie. But yeah, when you look at it, it's like, yeah, it's just King Kong's just a giant gorilla. You're like, well, okay, but this this guy, you know, the King Kong puppet is so distinctive looking. He doesn't look like well, yeah. anything else. Well, yeah, and it's just, uh, and it's also like, it's they took like an ape and like, but but tweaked it enough to give it its own uniqueness. You know, it's like, it's the greatest movie monster of all time. And it's like, you made an animal into this fantastic, uh, creature. The common becomes, uh, the outre, you know? Mm -hmm. Now there's, uh, over time, I mean, this movie was released in 1933 and then it was re-released in 1938 and in the, or 39, I believe. And then over the, in the course of those years, the production code, 
got installed. There was no movie yeah. production code in 1933. This is a pre, as they called them, pre-code horror movie. So there's lots of little stuff in the original film which was not seen in the later version. And yeah, like was, him eating people and squashing people. That stuff. That's just mean looking. And 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 they they definitely. Uh, Having seen the edited version, it definitely makes Kong seem more sympathetic. Right. To necessarily think it makes it a better film, just it's it's just a, a different way uh, uh, to 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 look at it. it. It it'd be interesting to kind of watch them side by side. I haven't in in in, in a long time seen that edited version, but yeah, me neither. I mean, I'm sure the one I saw on. TV was the edited one, and then the one that's on DVD has got, as you mentioned, it's got people literally being squished by King Kong. It's got the scene of King Kong flicking away uh, Anne's clothes, uh, which is, a, you know, like totally no way out there. Uh, there's a scene where Anne is talking to the guy, the uh, the first mate, the guy who's uh, peeling the potatoes. And, oh, Charles? Yeah, yeah, and she's clearly not wearing undergarments. I mean, you could right. see it pretty obvious, and it's it for 1933. That's you're like, whoa, you know, <laughs> okay, I'm not expecting <laughs> that. But yeah, I mean, it's, it was a movie that you know, after the production, go got their hands on it. Uh, the other thing that supposedly was cut, and this isn't related to the production code, but supposedly, and this is, I don't, I've never been able to find out whether this is exactly true or not because there's conflicting stories. But the apparently the the infamous spider pit sequence, which oh, is oh, good, I was hoping. Yeah, all the guys are running from King Kong, and they're trapped on the log between yeah. the dinosaur on the one side and Kong on the other, and then they get knocked into the pit, and that is a whole sequence where they get attacked by giant spiders and eaten. And according to again, a couple different sources, that scene did exist when the film first ran, and it was so horrific that audiences freaked out, and apparently Cooper and Shodstack said, well, it's got to come out then, because they thought it stopped the film dead cold and then there are other stories that say no 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 it was never in there in the first place now there are all that footage has been lost to the mists of time uh there are stills of it that famously yeah. appeared in famous monsters of Filmland. so yeah, is, that you know, yeah it existed somewhere and peter jackson actually went ahead and recreated it for the king kong uh dvd a couple of years later which is an amazing uh nerd uh, nerdy endeavor to undergo yeah, no, and I I enjoyed that. I think I have like the seventy fifth anniversary edition, and and I've got that. I it's 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 really a great sequence. I it's cool. I mean, yeah. I would love to have have the opportunity to see the original Spider Pit sequence. I don't doubt that it is uh, disturbing. I mean, you know, the scene where the brontosaurus bites the guy in the tree and then squishes him like behind the bush. You know, that gives me chills. You know, <laughs> like ugh. So I can just imagine. Uh, but it's like you watch to see all those guys fall, and they all clearly have like, uh, you know, they hit rocks when they land. <laughs> I wonder right. if it's just like a torture porn scene where they're just getting <laughs> torn apart and eaten. I mean, I don't know. It is unfathomable to me that the amount of work that had to go into, first of all, going into just the spider sequence, but just went into the whole movie in terms of how much – this thing had to be done for one frame at a time. I mean, part of the, the thing about King Kong is, like, if you watch him in different scenes, you can see his fur rustling in yeah, different scenes. Yeah. And that is that is technically a mistake. That's the fingerprints of the puppet operators, presumably Willis O'Brien, uh, matting the fur down in different shots and not noticing. But then apparently critics at the time said, oh, it's realistic. That's his fur blowing around. It's a, what, a, what a great detail. And it's like, well, it wasn't meant to be a detail, but we'll take credit for it. Sure. 
Yeah, I mean, that's something I've noticed my, you know, as far as long as I've been a fan of this movie. But it's it's such a minute thing that I, I, it's almost unavoidable uh, with if you're doing a puppet with hair. It, it lends a, a level of uh, warts and all kind of authenticity to the picture. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I said it's uh, I've watched several documentaries about the making of it and it said it's remarkable how pieced together this thing is in terms of like they had to invent special uh, camera processes just for this movie in terms of rear projection. I mean, there are shots in this movie where there are up to like four different things being composited all together. You know, there's some foliage and fake stuff in the front of the camera, which is literally in front of all the sets. And then you have a separate piece where the actor has been filmed, is moving around. Whether you've got Faye Ray or Robert Armstrong. And then you've got the Kong puppet or the brontosaurus or some of the dinosaurs that are moving around. And then you've got back projection behind that of the paintings. I mean, it's like, what? I mean, and this is 1933 technology. That, That sounds complicated to do now. Let yeah. alone doing it in 1933. I mean, and it was decades. I mean, they were still doing using rear projection in the 1980s. Yeah. You know, so it's like a technique that was very new then, but, like, that was the standard for doing uh, this kind of stuff for many, many years. Yeah, I mean, it's like one of the guys that created the process, like, patented it. Like, he literally owns the patent on that way of rear projecting in terms of getting film through a camera and being able to pick up uh, the the multi-layers of things. I mean, these guys were, as much as they were creative guys, they were also engineers. You know, like they knew how to build these things. And it's, like I said, it's just, it's, King Kong is one of those movies that it's, it's like, I think it, I, it's still very entertaining, but also on some level, you just are appreciative of the sheer man hours that went into it and the sheer inventiveness that that was involved in creating this thing. I mean, it's for someone, for anyone who grew up on, you know, appreciating movies, you, you're just sort of sitting there sort of slack door, like all the work that had to go into this of piecing all this together, every, every little movement, every little detail. I mean, there's the famous moment where after Kong kills the one dinosaur and then he sort of plays with its jaw because yeah. he's not sure that it's dead and he kind of like flaps it around. Like think of all the extra work you had to do for that little character detail. Well, right. And like, most people wouldn't think to have done that. Well, he killed it, and then they'll move on to the next thing. But it's but but giving him that that moment distinguishes Kong from just being a puppet or just being a monster. It's a real character. Yeah. And one of the great things about this movie, I just want to talk a little bit about the story. Like, it's so it's such a compelling story, and the cast is so good. Like, you're ne- there's never a boring moment because everybody in it is so likable. It's I mean it's forty minutes before you see Kong. Like if you put, you know, any other movie, like you put in front of a kid today, and the and like the the thing you want to, you know, that you you're watching the movie for it doesn't show up for forty minutes, they're gonna fall asleep. Right. Yeah. This is a, yeah. I mean, when you think about it, a lot of the criticism aimed at uh, Peter Jackson's movie was that it took too long to get to Skull Island. I think in a, in a three hour movie, it's an hour in before you get oh, to Skull geez. Island. But this movie doesn't show Kong until forty five minutes in, and this movie is uh, like not even two hours. So it's like. This movie goes almost to the halfway mark before you get to King yeah. of, but yet you are so wrapped up in the in the the actors, the, the three main actors that are going on. I mean, I do kind of love how much um, 
Bruce Cabot, John, John Driscoll, is kind of like just such a dick to Anne. Yeah. He's just like, I don't like women here. Women's are, women are always in the way. And she, yeah, you, you were on the way the minute you got on this boat. Like, he has no time for her. And then very quickly, he falls in love with Anne. Yeah. <laughs> he kind of turns around very fast. It's such a weird kind of misogyny that you, like, like you would you would forgive your grandpa for, right. you know, uh, <laughs> for being that way. It, it, it's it's such a a man of that time. You know, like, girls, that's for sissies, you know? like, Right. right. You know, even though Bruce Cabot is clearly an adult, uh, it, it's a strange attitude, but uh, I, I don't know. It, it works. I really like Frank Ranker as the skipper. Uh, he's one of my favorite characters in the whole movie. Now, what do you, what do you like about him? So I don't know. I, you know, he's he is so important as a, as a foil to Denim and... Uh, as an important resource as far as uh, co- uh, communicating with the natives. Um, you know, it, you get the impression that he and Denim have been through this routine before on plenty of other adventures. You know, there's a whole backstory of their relationship that is unspoken, but you know that these guys have been friends for years and it's so believable. I don't know, he's just one of those character actors I really like. He's in a couple of the Universal Mummy movies also as like a professor, and, and, and I like him in those. He's in The Mummy's Tomb and The Mummy's Ghost. Okay. <laughs> okay. So he's in the second and third uh, installments of a four-movie series. Okay. All right, yeah, the later ones where the mummy's running around Boston or whatever. That's great. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Because the first one, the Karloff one, uh, is unconnected to the other four. Right, 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 right. And then those are a series. Yeah. Um, yeah. In terms of the, uh, yeah, the actors, it's funny. They said Carl Denham is... Like this movie completely sides with Carl Denham because, of course, as I said, Cooper and Jodstack were Carl Denham. I mean, yeah. he, he is their surrogate. But yet, you know, Carl Denham is really a bad guy here. I mean, he goes all the way. I mean, he, you know, he kind of suckers Anne into this very scary, uh, you know, trip. Uh, I mean, there's the whole bit where he's like, you know, scream, Anne, scream for your life. And the, 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 the guys on the boat are like, oh boy, you know, because they, they know what she's in for. They know they're headed to this strange place and he's not telling Anne what's going on. But I mean, it's without Carl Denham, like they just would have left King Kong alone. He would have been happy living on the island. I mean, all yeah. this bad stuff happens at King Kong because Carl Denham has very little compassion for King Kong. And yet he doesn't he, suffer any comeuppance in the movie. He just kind well, of basically gets the, away with it. He does in the sequel. I think what the, 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 the appeal of, of Carl Denham is is he's this lovable con man, you know? He's the artful dodger. He's this wonderful, fast-talking guy that you, you, you maybe you don't fully trust, but you can't help but be charmed by. And I enjoy that. And 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 as you talk about, you know, he has no regard for Kong and everything. I think it's it is is emblematic of how we viewed nature and wildlife in the first part of the 20th century. Yes. It's like the world is ours to conquer and take and exploit and carl denham is a man of his time yeah i mean the, the, we we regarded the you know yeah all the corners of the world as we have every right to you know explore them and pull things out from them that we want and and you know i mean hunting was a huge thing lion taming you know all this stuff that seems kind of uh you know antiquated nowadays um it's funny like you think like frank buck was the famous lion tamer and like he had like a movie career being a lion tamer and nowadays, it's like you know, like, like that's a that's a a person would be like a, a what what like what's a lion tape? You know what I mean? But I mean, it's the world was a lot bigger back then. You know, it seemed like there there were maybe still unknown places to explore 
1933. And now, you know, with all our GPS and our phones and everything else, we don't have that sense of it anymore. But, you know, in 1933, maybe there were people still thinking, oh, maybe there are some mysterious islands somewhere that we can visit. And you know, there might be crazy creatures from a lost era or something like that. And what a wonderful dream to have. Like when you feel like there are still unexplored uh, parts of the world, how exciting, how, how, uh, how wonderful uh, to be able to imagine that that's a possibility. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Uh, it's that is, I think that's one not to get off a topic, but that was like one of the things about the, I thought that sort of worked about the Blair Witch Project. Was that like okay. that there was a notion that there is, you know, parts of the United States that you could still get lost in? Like I mean, that was an appealing thing like that, you know, to me that worked for the horror that like, yeah, there's still parts of this country so deep that you could just disappear in. And, you know, it's not all just mapped out. And I mean, this is, uh, you know, much more adventuresome than, uh, than the horror part of uh, the Blair Witch Project. But, yeah, it has that kind of nice feeling. And, you know, there is other people that have, you know, talked about the subtext of this movie. Quentin Tarantino is sort of famous for talking about that, you know, that King Kong is about, you know, the slave trade, is about how America, you know, enslaved African-Americans and brought them no. back. And, you know, there are people who said, no, that's not the movie, but uh, Tarantino's a big, you know, proponent of saying yeah but no that that's there whether you whether they thought it was there or not it is there. i mean you can read that kind of thing into it i mean looking at this movie from with a di- different lens you can definitely see a lot of uh, racial implications that sure. are pretty unsavory i don't think he's wrong uh, but i don't think i mean that's the intention of the film mm-hmm. but it also could also just be a monster movie you know a very compelling yeah. monster movie about the lost world and, you know, about how what happens when you venture into, you know, places that humans aren't meant to go. I mean, that's that's really the history of a lot of Westerns, of the idea of, you know, going out to the frontier and finding things that you weren't expected to find. That's kind of what Alien is about, basically. You know, yeah. a, bunch of, a bunch of astronauts going out and not being ready for what it is they're about to find. So, I mean, it, that's, a, that's sort of a, a classic trope is, is that story. And, of course, you know, everything goes wrong when Carl Denham brings Kong back, brings back to New York. And I love, one of the things I, I really am amused on is when he is um, getting the show ready for King Kong, yeah. and he's talking to the reporters, and he's like, I got an angle for you. How about Beauty and the Beast? That's your angle. I'm like, how about the angle? It's just that it's a giant ape. That seems to be enough of an angle. I don't think you need to do a lot more on the, I, uh, you know, yeah. reporting part of it. This is pretty amazing. This is pretty amazing. we got a 40-foot uh, gorilla here in the middle of New York City. Um, in that scene, there's this wonderful character actor who, he's a photographer, and he's like, the, 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 the reporters are talking amongst themselves. He's like, the guy who jumps, comes out and says, Denim's taking no chances. <laughs> that guy? Mm-hmm. I love that guy's face. It's just so perfect. Like, everybody trusts this guy, and then it's the perfect setup for everything to go wrong. Yeah, right. You're <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, the, I mean, the minute you say, of course, that, you know, the, these chains will stop, you know, King Kong, there's no way he can escape from them. Well, you're just guaranteeing he's going to escape. Yeah. I mean, that's all, you know. Uh, yeah. And that, that whole sequence of him running, uh, running amok in New York is really remarkable. I mean, like the train sequence, the subway platform scene. That oh, is yeah. Fantastic. I mean, that literally, to me, holds up to today. I mean, I think you could show that to a kid and it would be just as exciting as anything they would see in a Star Wars movie or anything like that. I mean, that is really brilliantly put together. Yeah. Uh, you know, and I, and I love the, you know, putting his feet into windowsills to climb up uh, right. uh, 
apartment buildings. I just, there's lots of wonderful stuff going on there. Um, and it's interesting for Willis O'Brien, this is kind of revisiting uh, the lost world because he had the brontosaurus running amok in New York or whatever in that. Right. So right. it's, 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 he's treading familiar ground there. And there's something, but, you know, the fact that he climbs the Empire State Building, which at the time was still relatively new. Uh, and it was, you know, it was 102 stories, which is this sort of monument to man's, you know, ability to conquer nature and reach into the sky and having a representative, a lost, a lost artifact from, from mother nature scaling this, you know, uh, man-made modern achievement. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's one of the great images in all of cinema. And apparently it was, this was the inspiration for the movie is that it was Mary C. Cooper had that picture in his head of a giant ape on top of the world's tallest building. And he worked backward from there to develop the movie. And it's sort of remarkable. He said he could, you know, he pieces that pieces, that image together and it, it becomes so ridiculously iconic. I mean, it's just, you can see it in silhouette and you know what it is. You can see it in, I mean, it's mentioned in TV shows. I've always uh, on the show. I, I always will talk about the, if there's a connection to mash, I will always mention that. And there's an episode of MASH where Colonel Potter talks about uh, Faye Ray. He mentions Faye Ray, and Radar says, I don't know who that is, because obviously like, that's a reference lost on him. And he says, King Kong, this big monkey, carried her to the top of the Empire State Building. And Radar goes, oh, boy, I heard there were some weirdos in New York. You know, it's like this amazingly, you know, memorable image. It is one of just, again, one of the great images in all of cinema. And if you look at most of the posters – for King Kong, and there are some great posters. Most of them are of him on top of the Empire State Building. Like that's oh, the yeah. shot that they focus on. It's it's odd to maybe have to have the climax be your poster, right. but yeah, it's, it's it's maybe the most iconic scene in in any movie. Yeah, I mean, I said this why when uh, when they did the remake, you know, they have him scaling the World Trade Center because it's like, well, we right. can't, we're going to redo, you know, we're going to do our modern version of that. But yeah, it's it's. It is, uh, and when he, you know, when he falls off the the building and lands on the street, I mean, it's just it's one of the most sort of sad and powerful things to see, you know, because it's like you are totally sympathetic with Kong at this point. I mean, you are. I mean, you've got all these human characters, and we like, you know, we like Driscoll and we like Anne, but you're totally on Kong's side because it's like, you know, leave the poor guy alone. You know, he doesn't want to be there. (laughs) Like, leave him alone. And it's, you know. Funny enough that uh, it's two of the pilots that bring him down are played by Cooper and Shodstack. They decided to play the part. They said that we we brought him to life, so we're going to kill him. So they're the, oh, they're the pilots that, that bring him down. See, I didn't know that. Yep. And I and I, I don't want to talk a minute about Faye Ray. I as Anne Darrow, she is just this perfectly sweet, innocent girl pulled into this incredible adventure, and it's so hard not to just. Uh, adore her, you know, for for lack of a better word. Um, yeah, she's terrific in this movie. She really is. I was gonna say, I remember uh, at the seventieth Oscar Awards, she was ninety years old, and they uh, they they had her brought her out, and, and Billy Crystal talked with her and stuff. It was that was something that I remember, and that's almost twenty years ago now. Hmm. I've had. I must have seen that. I had to have seen that because I've watched all the Oscars for like the last three decades. So, yeah, it's the '98 uh, Oscars. Huh. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, so she's. Uh, 
that was great that she lived long enough. And I was reading here on IMDb, and again, you know, you have to you have to be careful of these things and some of these facts that people put in. But it says when Fay Ray died on August eighth, two thousand four, King Kong was playing on a television in the emergency room. It was only noticed after she actually died that Ray's most famous film was being shown on television. Oh wow! <laughs> uh, I mean, it's she lived much longer than I think any other cast. They all kind of shuffled off much earlier so she got to be the representative and got to live long enough to see you know all of the history built up around this movie and when this uh when it was re-released in 1939 it was re-released on a triple bill with dracula and frankenstein and it was such a huge success that it basically single-handedly brought back horror movies because yeah horror movies had basically fallen out in favor around 35, 36, and they stopped making them, which is part of the reason Bela Lugosi's career kind of went where it did, because he couldn't get any work. And some enterprising movie theater uh, exhibitor had these prints lying around, and he piled the three together as a triple feature, and it just broke box office records. And uh, studios were like, oh, I guess horror movies are back in, and that's what started it all over again. Oh, wow. Yeah, because there is a gap. I mean, they, they, they make them for a few years in the in the 30s, especially the Universal Pictures. And then they don't really, other than Son of Frankenstein in 39, you know, it's, it's, it's the 40s before they come back again. Uh, right. Full swing. Yeah, I think it's Son, I think Son of Frankenstein was the first film that sort of the beneficiary of that new idea. It was like, oh, yeah. horror movies are back. And now you mentioned briefly Son of Kong. Uh, I haven't seen Son of Kong since I was a kid, so I remember nothing from it. It's amazing to think that that movie was was in theaters a year later. And that I mean, how they made the movie that quickly is beyond me. We, again, you talk about if like, I'm not mistaken, they actually got it back, got into the theaters the same year. Oh my! How's that even possible? <laughs> how could they get that done that quickly? It's a work ethic. I mean, how it's like how many? How could Jack Kirby turn out pages so quickly, or Kurt That's... Swan? That's a good. You know, that's you just point. buckle down and do the work. I guess so. Now, do you, know? do you would you remember much of Son of Kong? Like, is that a decent movie? It is. It is. Uh, I ha- it's been a few years since I've watched it, but I've always enjoyed it. It's not the great film that King Kong is, right? But it's a nice chance to see uh, to see Robert Armstrong and and Frank Riker again. Right, they're both back. Yeah. Yeah, and um, and it's good. You know, uh, it's an excellent sequel in that. Uh, Carl Denham has real consequences for uh, the debacle of Kong. Like he runs out, he he basically flees the country because um, of people suing him. Like, oh he, really? Oh yeah, <laughs> that's terrific. <laughs> yeah, he, he basically flees the country because uh, all the damage that Kong wrecked and all these people were hurt and and stuff. He's he's practically penniless, and so he gets with the skipper and they they hightail it out of the country and they go back to Skull Island because he heard from who knows where, that there was a, a son of Kong. And so they go, and they meet the, the great albino ape. And it's, Son of Kong is kind of really adorable, and it's it has a, a, an ending almost as sad as uh, the original. Huh. Now that you're saying that it's kind of a direct scene, like it literally picks up where King Kong leaves off, I want to go track it down now. I want to see it again, because yeah. I'm interested in, in the denim kind of gets gets what's coming to him. Because that is one of the things that always bothers me about King Kong is that Carl Denham just sort of gets away with it all and he gets to torture poor King Kong. But the fact that he doesn't fully get away with it in the second film, that makes me sort of happy. So I want to see it again. Yeah. You know, and then it's it's not the same character, but, you know, in, uh, was it 1949 with Mighty Joe Young, Robert Armstrong again, and a giant ape. Right, right, right. 
I was I was looking up the dates as you were talking, and yeah, King Kong came out in April 1933, and Son of Kong came out in December of 1933. Wow, unbelievable! So it's an immediate hit, and they're like sequel, sequel. go. That's unbelievable. That's yeah, remarkable. So that's a. Uh, like I said, it, it's it's just yeah, it's one of the great movies of all time. And you know, one of the things that, um, as I'm sort of wrapping up here, is the thing that that kept me interested in King Kong. Because I mean, when I was a kid, there was no VCRs. There weren't, you know, you either saw the movie again on TV or you didn't see it. Uh, was there was a line of books called Crestwood books? Are you familiar with these at all? That sounds kind of familiar. I don't. I don't think I owned them. But okay. Yeah, they were. The, they were this line of books for kids, and they were hard covers, and they were basically printed in in three colors: black, white, and orange. And they were thin books, so they were probably about almost perfectly square. And they were devoted to different horror movies. And the funny, the, what was fun about them is that they carried them in libraries. So when you were a kid. And you were in the library in school, you could literally go get a book about a monster. And it was like, wow, this is actually something I want to read about. You know, I don't read some boring thing about George Washington. I can read about King Kong. Yeah. And they, they had a whole line of them. It was like Dracula and the Blob and King Kong. I had the King Kong Crestwood book. And it was like, it was a great way to like relive the movie in between catching it on television. When I, this reminds me of something I'd completely forgotten. When I was in elementary school, we're talking the late 80s. Our school library had not those, but like a book or two about old monster movies. And it was mm-hmm. – these books were probably from the 60s or 70s. But yeah, it, this is where I got to learn about who Bela Lugosi was and, right, right. and, and who Karloff was and, and all of these things. And I just like I, – I devoured these things and, and I just like uh, – uh, it's it kickstarted uh, a serious love for monster movies that has never really faded for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it, it's it's really fun to be able to see that kind of stuff like in the in the context of being in school. You know, like it's it's officially sanctioned. You know, you're kind of like, oh, cool, I get to read this stuff. <laughs> you know, I've got I'm supposed to be learning about Ben Franklin or whatever, but I'm reading about King Kong, and they had a whole line of these books, and you can find them on eBay and stuff. I have a couple still in storage, but it was great because it gave you the whole plot, and it had stills from the movie. And it, you know, it's sort of like here was a book in a library which was treating a horror movie with some level of respect, which was like, you know, that was really fun because that was stuff that you loved as a kid, you know, stuff that was sort of like maybe considered unacceptable or, you know, like uh, not, uh, you know, not not something that your parents would necessarily love that you were embracing. But here you got to, you know, here it had a library call number on the side of the spine. This is, I'm reading a book, mom. It just happens to be about the creature from the Black Lagoon. It was terrific. It was a really fun book. I said I have to go see if I can find my King Kong book and dig it out of storage because it was it was said it was a great way to just relive the movie. So, but yeah, I mean it's it's King Kong. I mean I can't imagine anyone listening to this show has not seen it. It's it's wonderful. Uh, if you haven't seen it in a long time, I would say dig it out again. If you go just before you go see Kong Skull Island, you can make a whole uh, triple feature or quadruple feature. You could do Kong and Kong seventy six and two thousand five Kong, and then go see. Kong Skull Island. And of course, there's Son of Kong, as you mentioned, and there's King Kong versus Godzilla. Uh, there's all sorts of King Kongs you can. There's in, in King the Kong Escapes, the other kaiju one. Oh, that's and right. And there's King Kong Lives from the mid 80s, which apparently is horrendous. So <laughs> I, I got a story about King Kong Lives. Okay, lay it on me. Well, I, I mean, I, I used to rent it as a <laughs> <Okay>. kid because <laughs> I was crazy about King Kong. I never, I've to this day never seen uh, the 76 version in its entirety. 
Oh, okay, uh, interesting. But I know it's the sequel of that. But I, but I watched, I watched that. I, I, I've watched it a few times. Um, I'm sure if I watch it now, it's be just trash. But, but I remember liking it. You know, kids that just, it, it, it was fun enough. You know. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> but it's very weird to see. Uh, you know, in retrospect, to think, see a, a 1980s movie about this this uh, movie monster from the 30s, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> and it, the movie bombed big time. I'm, I'm surprised it was out on video, but but yeah, it, I, I'm sure it's trash. But uh, but I remember uh, liking it. I, I, I like the I like the idea of that movie. <laughs> okay, <laughs> that's true of a lot of movies. Yeah, I like the idea yeah. of it. I don't know if I like the actual execution of it. But uh, but yeah, you don't have to say that about King Kong. Everyone knows how how great this is. It's it's one of the the great cinematic achievements of all time. So if you haven't seen it in a long time, uh, give it another watch. It's it's it just holds up completely. And if you get the DVD, there is a wonderful audio commentary by Ray Harryhausen, uh, oh. where he talks about how much he loved the movie because he grew up on the movie. I mean, he became a protege of Willis O'Brien and. He yeah. tells all sorts of wonderful stories, and so it's a and that's it's got all the the stuff with Peter Jackson, all the the stuff about the spider pit sequence. It's a really wonderfully deluxe DVD. So pick that one up if if you're a Kong fan. It's got tons and tons of stuff. So, uh, well, Nicholas, thank you so much for coming on to talk about King Kong, man. This was a lot of fun. Oh yeah, this is great, Rob. Thank you again uh, so much for having me. Thank you for coming on. Where can people find you on the internets? Well, um, uh, Comic Reflections is available on iTunes and Stitcher. That's my show about Silver and Bronze Age comic books. Um, and I'm on Twitter, at Comic Reflections, and on Instagram, at Promcakes. <laughs> okay. It's a nickname from college. Interesting. There's a whole other story related to that, but we'll, we'll leave it go for now. So, uh, yeah. yeah, if you want to find this show, of course, it's uh, this and all our other great shows are on our network site, which is fireandwaterpodcast.com. And you can follow us on Twitter at Film and Water Pod. So thanks, everybody, for listening. And until next week, that's a wrap. Camera. Look up slowly, Ann. That's it. You don't see anything. Now look higher. Still higher. Now you see it. You're amazed. You can't believe it. Your eyes open wider. It's horrible, Anne, but you can't look away. There's no chance for you, Anne. No escape. You're helpless, Anne. Helpless. There's just one chance. If you can scream, but your throat's paralyzed. Try to scream, Anne. Cry. Perhaps if you didn't see it, you could scream. Throw your arms across your eyes and scream, Anne. Scream for your life. What's he think she's really gonna see? Those of you who have stuck around, you're probably wondering, isn't the show over? Why is Rob still talking? Uh, Yeah, uh, basically the show was over. Uh, I recorded the King Kong episode with Nicholas Prom, and I had the episode ready, and and it was uh, finished, and I had the... uh, final audio track laid in which uh, the audio clip which means the show was over and then just as i was finishing it uh, two big events transpired and i felt as though i should talk about them briefly and i realized i didn't want to do a separate mini-sode so i thought why not just sort of attach it here to the end of uh, this episode so the two things i want to talk about that are kind of big deal was first of all the passing of bill paxton I'm sure like everyone else I was completely shocked at the news. He had appeared on Mark Maron's uh, WTF podcast just a couple of weeks ago, 
and he sounded great and healthy and everything else. And so uh, to hear that he passed away due to surgical complications at 61 is uh, just tragic, just absolutely tragic. He had a wife and two children, and he just sounded on that show like a great guy. And I think everybody was just a completely shocking news that uh, that he would pass away uh, so young and just uh, seemingly so out of the blue. You know, like a lot of people uh, my age, you know, he was really like one of those guys that just was in so many great movies, uh, movies that you saw on cable or on DVD or VHS or whatever growing up. And, you know, from I, like most people, I probably saw him really took notice of him in uh, Aliens, of course. Uh, his performance in that movie is just so gangbusters. He he's such wonderfully needed comic relief in that movie. I mean, he you know, in that movie he's us. You know, he's Hudson is us. He is what most of us would do in that situation. Uh, would uh, namely uh, have a complete meltdown. And uh, you know, in a movie that is two and over two hours of just white knuckle intensity. He's the comic relief, you know, but it's it's not annoying comic relief. It's not Jar Jar Binks comic relief. It's it's a pressure valve comic relief. I mean, the way he just wants to put her in charge and, you know, the game over. I mean, the game over. That line by itself has, uh, you know, ensured that Bill Paxson will be enshrined in sort of movie history. Uh, I have to say I was a little incensed that so many people use that as the quote when they talked about that he died. I was like, that's a little insensitive. I mean, it's, it's the guy's life for Pete's sakes, but... Uh, it also says something about how indelible uh, that line is. So he was just terrific in that. And, of course, he was in Terminator. He was in Predator 2, which means he's one of, I think, him and Lance Hendrickson are one of only two actors in all of movie history to have been killed by a Terminator, a Predator, and an alien. Just <laughs> a wonderful little footnote to his career. But, um, you know, not just aliens. He had a really a, a series of, of wonderful films. Uh, he was in Near Dark which is a sort of like a semi-aliens reunion, a wonderfully underrated little movie, one of the great vampire movies, and he's terrific in that. He's in Weird Science, of course, as the, the big brother Chet. Uh, you know, even, even when he's turned into that giant pile of crap or whatever it is that he's turned into, and he's just still it's kind of defending his behavior. I do it out of love. I mean, he's just, you know, so funny. He really sort of used his physicality in, in great ways because he had kind of that big football player build, and yet apparently he was, you know, a real sensitive guy. If you Again, if you listen to an interview with him, uh, with Mark Maron, he displays some real sensitivity, and you saw, saw that in some of his other performances. He's in a great movie called uh, One False Move, where he plays kind of this backwoods cop kind of guy. He's great in that. Uh, he is in Sam Raimi's A Simple Plan, where he is... Uh, sort of cast against type a little, where he's the moral center of that movie. Him and uh, Billy Bob Thornton discover this cache of money out in the woods that they know isn't theirs, and uh, everyone around Bill Paxton's character all of a sudden gets super greedy and decides they're going to keep the money, and he's the only one that seems to have any sort of common sense uh, displaying, you know, we can't, we can't be doing this, and uh, you're really with him throughout the whole movie because you know things are going to go bad and I remember seeing that movie in the theater and I thought he was terrific and it was nice to see him doing something kind of different uh, than than the other you know roles you had seen him in so he's terrific in that later on of course uh, he was in Apollo 13 with Tom Hanks and Kevin Bacon he's in Tombstone he's in Twister he's the lead in Twister that's not really one of my favorite movies but again it was nice to see him kind of in a, a lead role uh, of course he was in Titanic with his you know thanks to his friend uh James Cameron was at the quite 
beneficial relationship to the, to the two of them there. He's in Money Joe Young. Uh, he directed a movie called Frailty, which is a terrific horror movie about uh, someone who has gone completely off the edge in terms of their religious devotion. And uh, that's a great little movie. Uh, if you haven't seen Frailty, uh, I absolutely suggest you see it. it. It showed that Bill Paxton probably could have had a, uh, an interesting career as a director if he had chosen it. But that's a that's a really wonderful little movie. And he kept he kept working. I mean, he was in a lot of other things after this. He had many credits. Uh, he still has one film left to go, The Circle, with Tom Hanks again, reunited with Tom Hanks, and um, Emma Watson. That's going to end up being his last film. And uh, you know, the guy just kept working, and he was always good, always interesting. Uh, he was just one of those guys, you know, to a certain to a certain uh, age set, which I am one. He was just a, a wonderful presence to see in a movie, and uh, he's really going to be missed. He's really going to be missed. And uh, like I said, it's a real tragedy to see someone uh, at sixty-one die like that. Uh, sixty-one just just far too young, especially when you've got family that you leave behind. So it's it's a real tragedy. And uh, But luckily, you know, there are movies out there, and his legacy will live on for years and years and years to come. And he's one of the sort of great character actors. And so we're really going to miss uh, Bill Paxton. And the thing that partly inspired me to want to do this is, of course, he was mentioned uh, at the Oscars. Uh, which leads me to the second thing I want to talk about, which is, of course, the, the Academy Awards has transpired. I thought that they weren't going to be able to fit him in because, obviously, that montage is sort of timed perfectly, and he had died just the same day as the Oscars. But uh, they mention him at the top of the, the the segment, Jennifer Aniston did the intro, and she mentions Bill Paxton. I thought that was nice that they got him in there. I hope that he actually gets to be on the role uh, next year, that they you know show a clip of him like they do some of the other actors. I hope he gets his, his due. But uh, anyway, I'm going to trans over, transition over to the, the Oscars now because obviously the big story of the Oscars was what the F happened at the end there. Uh, I'm sort of flabbergasted that they don't have something built in to where if a presenter opens a card and clearly figures out that the card they are reading is incorrect, which is what Warren Beatty did realize because he realized he had the card for Best Actress in his envelope – that you don't just stop the show. I mean, I know it's a live show, and especially it's the last big best picture is the uh, the final award of the night, and everybody wants to go to bed because the damn thing's been on for five and a half hours. But, you know, you got to get it right. And so I just kind of can't believe that they don't tell the presenters, if something's wrong, if something's clearly wrong, stop the show. Just say, hey, everybody, hold on. I think I have the wrong envelope. Because I think that would have been a lot better than, than what happened, which was, of course drag everybody on stage for La La Land and then have it taken away from them to go to give it to Moonlight. And I haven't seen Moonlight. Uh, I desperately want to. It, even though I live in the most populous state in the Union, uh, it really didn't play around here. It only played in Philly uh, over the river from us here, and I just never really got a chance to see it. And so I guess I'll have to wait till till it comes to, to home entertainment. I don't have any problem with the fact that Moonlight won. I'd heard that Moonlight is terrific. I was rooting for La La Land mostly because of the movies that were nominated for Best Picture. It was my favorite of the bunch. Uh, but from what I understand, Moonlight is, is a terrific movie. But I feel bad for Moonlight kind of because they didn't get their moment. You know, the, the filmmakers didn't get to hear their name called out right at the exact moment. They got to kind of go on later. And, and so in, in some ways it's like both La La Land and Moonlight kind of lost out. Uh, due to a stupid uh, clerical error, you know? I mean, envelope guy, you had one job. So that was confounding and disappointing and weird. 
Uh, I'm very happy that uh, Emma Stone won. As everybody knows, I have like, this giant crush on Emma Stone. I just think she's wonderful ever since I think of her saw her in Superbad or something. And I thought she was terrific in La La Land, so I'm glad she won. Damien Chazelle, uh, the youngest uh, Oscar winner for Best Director in history. He beats out Norman Torog, I think, by a couple of months, who won back in, like, 1936 or something. So, yeah, I, you know, well-deserved. Well-deserved. Damien Chazelle's clearly uh, a wonderkind. He's only two films into his career, but the guy has got some uh, major skills going on, and I'm really looking forward to his next film, which is apparently a biopic of Neil Armstrong starring uh, Ryan Gosling again, so line up the Oscars for that. Um, overall, I always I, I always enjoy really watching the Oscars. I don't get the whole sort of snobby, I don't watch the Oscars, they're all a bunch of crap kind of mentality. They're fun, and, and in a lot of ways, they're, they're there to shine a light on films that uh, a lot of people would never hear of. I, would, I think that's probably the case of, with Moonlight. I think probably there's probably millions of people that watch the Oscars and never even heard of Moonlight. And now... They've heard it's the winner for Best Picture. I think I heard today that it's the lowest budgeted movie ever to win Best Picture. Uh, obviously, it's not adjusted dollars or something, but at least within the last couple of decades, it's the lowest budget film of, of all time to win Best Picture. And I think that's terrific. Uh, you know, it doesn't have any feature. It doesn't feature any big stars, and so you know now more people will get to to notice it, and more films like that will get to be made. More more diverse views. More. Uh, both uh, in front of the camera and behind it. And I think that's a great thing. So I enjoyed it. Uh, I never fully understand why, when a show is so long, as, as this one always is, why they feel the need to like insert all those comedy bits. I thought the, the bit about the uh, tour bus was sort of endless. And at a show that's four and a half hours, I don't know why you stick like this, what seems like a 20-minute comedy segment in the middle of it. Um, I like all the stuff about... The history of movies, I, I wish the Oscars did more of that. I feel like this is their one chance in a year to sort of promote their product and talk about the history of movies and why it's important and what it reveals to the culture. So the segments they had where they had a modern star talk about an older film that meant a lot to them. And in this case, you had Charlize Theron talking about The Apartment. And then you had Seth Rogen talking about Back to the Future and Javier Bardem talking about Bridges in Madison County. And then they came out with the stars of those movies and, and did a dual presentation. I thought that was terrific, and I'd love to see more of that. I, I want to see more about the history of movies. Less comedy bits, less stuff that's written uh, just to be funny, and more about the history of movies. I think that would be great. I love that kind of stuff. So overall, I thought it was a decent show. I was really on board for, uh, as I said, uh, really on board for La La Land, and so I was happy to watch it win. Uh, as many awards as it did. But I thought there were a lot of other great movies out there. And, of course, now we all get to say the phrase, the Oscar-winning Suicide Squad. So, uh, yeah, the Oscars. I thought they were a lot of fun. Uh, though I guess the one final thought I have about the Oscars is the whole Best Picture thing. I know that they increased the amount of movies that could possibly be nominated to a possible 10. And the, the original idea there was to have some room for big blockbusters or more sort of mass entertainment stuff ever since The Dark Knight kind of got snubbed. And that really hasn't panned out. So far now, it's really been the 6 through 9 or 6 through 10 slots are just filled with even smaller indie fare. So it hasn't really kind of worked out the way they had planned. And I don't know what the solution to that is. I wonder if you can't do something where you can maybe have genre selections and a, a film that rises to the top of a particular genre gets automatically slotted 
in as a nomination for best picture uh, because you know if people if, if these 10 slots just keep getting handed to you know the most arty movies sort of then you know comedies or action films are always going to get left out and you know while i didn't necessarily think it was the greatest thing i ever saw like i thought like a movie like captain america civil war considering that it was probably w- much better done than most people would expect was a monster hit uh, probably one of the best films of its particular type. I think a film like Captain America Civil War deserves to be in the conversation for Best Picture. It's not going to win. It's not even going to get close. But I feel like you give a more rounded view of cinema in any given year if you can possibly have slots for that. And, you know, comedies are always hard to, to get in there, but I think, you know, maybe you could do the same thing for a comedy. Like, what was, you know, of the best comedies of this year? And I don't want them to be a separate category like you do for the Golden Globes. But, I don't know. I feel like there should be just some more credence given to genre stuff. And I was happy to see Arrival get in there. Because, again, science fiction, horror, it's another genre that's frequently left out. The Witch was a movie that some people talked about as a possibility. But the stuff gets left out. So, you know, it's an evolving thing. They made some major changes this year to to combat the Oscar so white controversy. And that seemed to have worked. They have some more diverse voices going on. I enjoyed them. I feel bad for La La Land and the way it was, the way it all went down, but it certainly was sort of bizarrely entertaining. And I guess they'll have to have Warren Beatty and Faye Dunaway back next year and make sure the envelopes are right this time. So uh, thanks everybody for listening to this little bonus segment that I'm recording. Uh, once again, uh, big rest in peace to the great Bill Paxton. Uh, he will be missed. And uh, again, thanks everybody for listening, and we'll see you next week. Bye. This floor is freezing. What do you want me to do? Fetch your slippers for you? Gee, would you, sir? I'd like that.